0: Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is paranormal researcher and author, Michelle Soulier. Michelle is a resident of Portland in the US state of Maine and since 2005 has been chronicling the weirdness of that part of the world in her Strange Maine blog, which explores unusual local history, mysteries, legends, cryptids, and a whole lot more. In 2021 she released her book Bigfoot in Maine, which is the subject of our conversation for this episode. In the interview we talk about the history of Bigfoot sightings in Maine, and what might explain some of those encounters. We then move on to discuss the eyewitness experiences Michelle has recorded from more recent times, interviewing the people involved to get their testimony firsthand. Some of those experiences are quite incredible and offer a fascinating insight into the nature of the Bigfoot phenomenon. It was a very interesting chat. Enjoy. Michelle, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Your book is centered around the state of Maine. For people who aren't familiar with that part of the world, just, just describe it a little.
1: Oh, sure. Yes. Um, so Maine is at the very northeastern tip of the United States. Um, part of our border is, well, a large part of our border is along the Atlantic Ocean. Um, And a bunch of the top of the state is up against the Canadian border. And then we have uh, New Hampshire is squished right in on the (laughs) on our on our southern southwestern side. So we're, we are literally the tip of the iceberg that is the United States.
0: Right? Yeah. And in in the book, you describe how it's a heavily forested state. I mean, I know from from my perspective, when I think of a wilderness in America, I might think of perhaps the Pacific Northwest. But actually, a lot of states in America have a lot of tree cover, and Maine is definitely one of them.
1: Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's it's rather epic. And, and I live in the southern part of the state, which is not as forested. And even down here, there's there's plenty of tree cover. But when you get up north it is vast it is (laughs) it is just a shockingly uh vast uh trees just in every direction it's kind of amazing
0: Mm. and so what drew you to the subject of Bigfoot and prompted you to want to write the book
1: Oh, um, well. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been interested in you know odd and anomalous stuff—the things that get dropped from the history books—and um, that sort of stayed with me for a long time, uh, dormant for a while, you know, through the years when you're growing up and getting a job and figuring out what you're doing. Um, and then in the early 2000s, I started the Strange Main blog, which focused specifically on Maine related odd stuff like that. And, uh, one of the first topics that I became aware of as I researched was that there was a, uh, there were historic, uh, mystery hominid sightings in Maine, which sort of blew my mind at the time. And, uh, since then I got to know Lauren Coleman. Um, and, uh, he's, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know his name, but he's, uh, a very well-known cryptozoologist here in the US. And uh, we were actually going to co-write this book together originally um, until he wound up with uh, too many commitments and some health problems that uh, derailed his part of the book. And then it became all mine. Um, And I guess uh, what really kicked everything off, like the historic research, I love. Um, I've done a ton of it in all sorts of different, different topics here in Maine. But when I started interviewing eyewitnesses for this book, um, people who had seen things they couldn't explain and really got into the oral history element of it, that's when I got way more interested in it.
0: <laughs> I can imagine. Um, so yeah, in, in your book, you do have a, a section prior to the with the witness statements that you took about the sort of the history of Bigfoot sightings in Maine or or creatures that that are essentially what we understand Bigfoot to be. So just talk a little bit about them, because I know that there were sort of reports of of wild men, for instance, back in the 1780s, I think.
1: Yes. um, Yeah, there, I think since the late 1700s, I think probably right up through the early 1900s, there have been reports of what are considered wild men uh, in Maine, and those are generally strange, almost feral, uh, behaving humans uh, you know in sometimes in very remote areas but oftentimes abutting populated areas of the state and uh, it's it's an interesting tie in to the whole bigfoot phenomena because you know you want to look at those cases and figure out if it was actually uh, something that fits the the bigfoot type or if it really is just a human being that's you know having issues uh, and is living wild uh, a lot of the accounts in the newspapers that i found actually mentioned that the person spoke or yelled at <laughs> or somebody or you know was wearing various types of clothing and so those were an easy elimination for for ones that were not uh actually bigfoot related uh, but the really interesting ones um my two favorite are the, uh, the 1855 accounts of uh, a tiny ape man that was found by, uh, what is it, Mr. Uh, J.W. McHenry uh, in Wildeboro, uh <laughs> where he found, um, let's see, what he described as a, uh, a tiny creature, a, a miniature human being is what he called it in his, uh, his letter to the Thomaston Journal and uh, it was basically this tiny fur covered or hair covered creature that walked on two legs like a human and uh, emitted very strange noises. Um, My guess is it might have been a black spider monkey, but uh, you know, I'm basing it just on on the description he gave, and there's little more than that to go on, but that was a that was an interesting oddball anomalous primate. Um, but the other really great one was um, there was a, uh, a fabulous account from South Gardner, which isn't that far from Portland, which is, uh, yeah, 1895, August 1895. So in the heat of summer, uh, a story appeared in the Bar Harbor Record. Uh, which talked about how people living on the outskirts of South Gardner had been startled by unearthly shrieks lately. And then uh, two women and three boys went into the woods uh, to pick blueberries, uh, which is a very uh, ample harvest at that time of the year. And they came upon a hairy monster, which walked upright on its hind legs towards them. Uh, They were badly scared, of course, Uh, But the animal, which looked like an immense African monkey, walked past them, leaving a footprint like a saucer. So that's a that's a very odd one. And I've those, you know, the McHenry story and that 1895 South Gardner story are ones that I've, you know, searched for more traces of because I'd really like to know more about them. But, you know, the old newspapers are very elusive. Very few of them have been digitized and and very few of them are in archival holdings in the state. It's it's like searching for a needle in a haystack. But I hold out hope that someday I will know more about those.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. Um, it does sound like the small ape that you were describing there could be a monkey. I, I know you from reading the book that you know Maine does have quite a few coastal ports, which would have had ships coming in from across the world so the likelihood of a a monkey being brought back is it's not unreasonable to imagine that could be a an exotic pet that has escaped perhaps
1: yes and that was you know that was something when i when i was digging around looking for stuff about the mchenry story that i definitely uh, was it was pretty easy to verify that, you know, there were monkeys coming into main ports, on board ships, uh, being owned by main sailors. And uh, so there was every likelihood that that little guy was some sort of escapee <laughs> who had wandered off and was, you know, running amok in the woods.
0: But in, in terms of the, the other case, that, that doesn't sound like something that someone would bring back <laughs> or they'd have trouble no. trying to do that. <laughs> so in a case like that, what information does the local populace have that could sort of inform the sort of the collective unconsciousness of those populations when it comes to them then describing what they see in, in terms of what sort of creature it might be? I mean, are they at this time, are, are, are people sort of able to get information on creatures like gorillas and chimpanzees, orangutans, things like that?
1: Uh, yeah, there were um, consecutive to that. There were there are definitely um, traveling circuses, uh, small scale circuses that were coming through the area in the years before that. So so people would have had a familiarity, um, you know, because those would attract a lot of visitors, and you'd hear from your neighbors about it. And yeah, so so the existence and the description of large apes um, and small apes would have been pretty well. Um, absorbed into the general populace mind. Uh, and I'm, the one thing about that description was that they described it walking, which there are, there are very few, uh, members of the ape family that walk as a regular mode of uh, locomotion. I think the bonobos are the only ones that I've come across that do it regularly and have, you know, a posture that really lends itself to that. So, so that's, that was the bit of the description on that one that makes me kind of wonder. Hmm, this might be something that go This is definitely more towards that that Bigfoot side of the spectrum, so far as uh, you know, rumored appearances go back then.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, another um, encounter uh, that you write about uh, is the, the Medibemps howler. <laughs> Amazing oh, yeah. name for um, <laughs> for an encounter, anyway, and a creature. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah. The Metabems Howler is another one I'd love to know more about. Um, That one, I I didn't do a lot of including stuff that other people, you know, that come from other sites online. uh, But that was one that was so fascinating and tied to rumors I'd heard uh, that that made me want to include it. Um, And that was I think it was they and also the date was very vague, which is, you know, complicates things. I like to know exactly when things happened, um, doing historic research. It's really important. Um, but that was, uh, that was rec- uh, reported, um, by, uh, uh Jackson and Tulane Porter, who I I still need to try to get in touch with just to to talk to them and see if they heard anything else. Um, But they were told the story by two elder women from the Indian Township Reservation at a Thanksgiving dinner in 2006. Um, And they estimated, based on the women's age uh, and the date of when they talked to them, that the events probably happened uh, about 60 years previous. So in the 1940s, most likely, uh, when the two women were young uh, and still growing up, uh, they'd go on family camping trips, and uh, the bumps Medibim, Lake area was was where they happened to spend time. Um, and <laughs> the uh, the girl, there were stories in the area that the girls had heard. There were noises that you would hear at night, uh, and they explained the howling was more, was like a less like howling and more like a monotonous singing. Uh, in a very husky voice, uh, but they called it a howler uh, in talking about this, whatever it was that was making the noise. Um, They, uh, they had been out late at their favorite fishing spot um, without the adults there to supervise. And they turned to see two black giants uh, what they described as black giants staring down at them. Uh, The bigger one took the day's catch of fish from the girl's bucket and then walked over to the smaller giant and handed the fish over. Uh, and then they returned to the water and swam away with the fish that the, the girls had spent all day catching. Um, so the, uh, the women described the, the creatures as being, uh, two fathers high and covered in black, shiny hair. Uh, they had huge hairy black hands with fingers as big as the fish that they had caught, uh, which were small mouth bass. Uh, they had big feet and had no clothing on and, uh, the uh their parents have uh, arrived shortly after with the canoe to pick them up from the from the fishing spot and didn't seem very phased by the girls story um and uh you know because they knew stories from the area from years before and uh they uh reminded the girls that uh sometimes it's not just fish they steal sometimes it's little girls <laughs> So I think in the future, they were very careful about how late they stayed out by themselves in certain spots. So, you know, there it sort of bleeds into the uh, cautionary tales that you tell your kids about the boogeyman to keep them out of trouble. (laughs) So which there are definitely plenty of plenty of out there in the world.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love the measurement of two fathers high. A father or mother as a unit of measurement would be would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's that's really interesting. I I I can't remember reading many accounts of seeing these creatures swimming. That's um quite notable, I think.
1: Yeah, there um I've heard there's one unsubstantiated story about somebody seeing one swimming down a local river. Um and then one of the eyewitnesses that I talked to saw some in a river apparently fishing um from the rocks. And uh, yeah, so there and every every sighting, every location where sightings are reported, there is a preponderance of water sources, either streams or brooks or rivers or boggy, swampy areas, uh, lakes, ponds. Uh, So it's almost shocking that there aren't more reports of them in the water because we know that they're very comfortable (laughs) in and around the water from the little bits we do know.
0: Mm. And just going back in history a little bit, something that's often brought up when it comes to the concept of Bigfoot being a flesh and blood creature is that there hasn't been a body found. But Mm. uh, in this, in this section of the book, you do mention that they did find a a large skeleton or there there was Uh, the finding of one was reported, I think.
1: Yeah, that's the, uh, the Deer Isle skeleton. Um, that's another story that I continue to hope to find more traces of someday. Um, it was, uh, um, it was reported in a history of Deer Isle, uh, which is a very small community in Maine. Um, and when they found the skeleton, it was, um, It was essentially a giant, a giant skeleton that had been found um, almost in the embrace of a much smaller, normal human-sized skeleton um, underneath the roots of a tree embedded. Uh, The tree roots had grown around uh, the skeletons and the remains of these two um, humanoid creatures that had been locked in some sort of struggle because there was... Um, a weapon which had apparently delivered one of the killing blows still embedded uh, in the skeleton of one of them. And uh, and it, supposedly one of the local doctors had, you know, taken the skeleton um, into his collection. And I'd really love to track down further where that went because there are so <laughs> many rumors here in the U.S. of pretty much any large skeleton being somehow spirited away and then never seen again so (laughs) it's it's one of those big mystery elements that you know you have to have at least one of those kicking around to puzzle over
0: yeah definitely it's usually the the smithsonian will turn up and spirit away any any (laughs) giant skeleton remains yes that's that's
1: the big rumor
0: (laughs) (laughs) but you're absolutely right it would be it'd be amazing to find that skeleton just to see what it was yeah so anyway getting to your own research and the the interviews that you did with people who've had experiences and encounters with these sorts of creatures how did you prepare for that what how did you go about sort of finding people and determining who would be suitable to interview
1: yeah that was uh that was an interesting process i i started out initially um Just, uh, you know, doing the typical kind of things, you know, doing a post on my blog, asking for information, asking for people to contact me if they wanted to talk to me about it. Um, I had a couple of friends who are actually reporters, and they very kindly did articles about um, what I was trying to do. And that is what actually kicked off uh, the first few interviews that I got people who read the article and said, Oh, she might be interested in what I saw. Um, and so the first few interviews I got were thanks to my fabulous friends who, <laughs> who were reporters and took the time to to talk to me and then put that out there in the world. Um and uh and after that, there there was just kind of this slow trickle um of cases coming in between. People who'd heard I was looking for stories like that. People who got referred to me by other friends of mine who knew I was looking for stuff like that. And then the other portion of them were people who, you know, had made a comment somewhere online, um, not necessarily going into any detail, but saying, oh, that sounds like something that happened to me when somebody else was talking about uh, Bigfoot in Maine and uh, trying to track those folks down, which can get really tricky because people use a lot of pseudonyms or usernames and their emails stop working, even if they post them. (laughs) So it's like, so that was a lot that took some people. I just talked to a guy the other, uh, or got, got his story the other night. Um, and I'd been trying to track him down for years and years and years. So, um, it's, uh, it's quite the process. And uh, you know, sometimes people contact you and then a week or two later, they decide they don't want to talk anymore. They've thought better of, you know, putting their story out in the world because, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they just want to keep it to themselves. um, Or maybe they don't want to deal with all that potentially could come with that. You know, Um, it's a very, it's a very delicate, line to trod when you're talking to people. And so I try to, you know, everything I do when I talk to eyewitnesses is like, this is all about them. This is their story. I don't want to tweak it myself. I don't want to exploit it. I just, my whole goal is to, you know, get these stories out there as they're told and then put them basically on record for the people of the state of Maine um, especially those who are curious about this, or who might have had weird, inexplicable experiences themselves, and felt alone, um, and didn't know, you know, you know, like as many, many people I talked to said, you know, I know what I saw is what they mm-hmm. say, but you know, there are always moments when they're like, did I see? You know, they're always questioning. They're always trying to make sure that they didn't cross that line into imagining something because it's so unbelievable. And it, it's and it's really life changing when people encounter something like this.
0: Definitely, I mean, so when you were, um, were interviewing people, how did you approach talking to them about what they saw and and having the sort of the the skeptical rational approach, which would I, I guess would be, I believe that you saw, you think you saw what you saw, but could it be a creature that is recognized as existing here? Was that something that you used in your approach, or was it more just letting the the people tell their story, which is which is equally valid? I know. I... Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah um, no, I definitely I start out by letting them tell their story because that's you know that is the key part. That's the most important part. Um, but then after they've told me the story, then I ask them questions. You know, questions about. Um, details I'm curious about that they might have noticed Um, details that for me will clarify um, that they knew what they were looking at um, or knew what they weren't looking at. More importantly, you know, did it, you know, what was the nose like, you know, it, was it a snout? Because I mean, you know, the easiest elimination of a bear is that, you know, all bears have a snout Um, and there are bears that stand on two legs. Although they don't generally, unless they're challenged by an injury, don't locomote that way. They don't walk on two legs generally, but, you know, it's a, it's definitely the closest analog to what we're talking about here. So eliminating that is rather key. Um, And likewise that it wasn't, you know, a human being in a ghillie suit or something like that, because people, you know, they wear ghillie suits for hunting and they also, you know, people like to play pranks. So, but um, I think I've been really lucky uh, because I'm kind of a low-profile person myself. I'm not like none of this is about celebrity, and so I don't generally get approached by people who, you know, are looking for fame. Um, I'm approached by a lot of people who are very hesitant to talk about what they encountered. Um, many of which who didn't even tell family members about it for decades. Um, so I think I've been very fortunate that I don't. I've I've been very lucky that the people who approach me are very sincere. They're not. Um, they're not trying to create a hubbub about something that they saw just to get themselves in the limelight. So, so that's I think I've been very very lucky <laughs> in that respect.
0: Hmm. So the first case that you include in the book is a, a woman who was a girl at the time called Susie. And I, I found that yes. case fascinating, her and, and Wabu. So just talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, Susie uh, had an extremely uh, long-lived interaction uh, with uh, what, what, what turned out to be a, fam- a small family of, uh, of Wabu and his mate and their um, child. And they lived somewhere uh, in the vast, <laughs> the vast wilderness around a very remote uh, lakeside cabin where they where she spent a few years growing up. Um, she was spent a lot of time without parental super supervision at a very young age, um, and out in the backyard playing, and uh, encountered, you know, in slow stages uh, a wabu uh who you know initially was just there kind of watching her and you know presumably curious about her interested in her and he observed her while she was out playing and then she realized you know that she was being watched and then eventually they started um trying to in a very rudimentary fashion communicate with each other um and interact over the years. Uh, so, I mean, there were no other kids around for her to play with. I think there were only like three houses on the, on the fire lane that she lived on. Um, it was, it's an extremely remote area and, uh, there was, I mean, there was nothing really to get in the way of them, you know, getting to know each other in, you know, little segments of time that they spent together. Uh, she, She's a very private person, um, but she also felt like it was important to get the word out about the existence of these creatures and her experience with them because there, you know, there were that, that there was that whole slew of shows that came out, um, you know, offering rewards for the capture of Bigfoot, you know, big celebrity. <laughs> You know, involvement and, you know, generally turning it into like a high profile manhunt uh, for a specimen of one of these creatures. And she was really concerned that it was going to endanger whatever population of them was left um, and that we needed to look at them more as neighbors as opposed to prey. Um, And that was her main motivation, I think, in coming forward with her story. Uh, She did a really great little video documentary that you can find online with Lincoln County Television, uh, where she was interviewed by the producer about her experiences. And it's a singularly compelling story. uh th- I don't there's nothing really to compare to it in any of the other people I spoke to uh most of the people I spoke to had split second encounters uh that were unexpected and never repeated <laughs> so her her story stands out uh for sure, and she's still you know decades later she's you know when she talks about it, she's back in those moments um you can see in the in the video interview that she does it's you know it's it changed her life and as as far as she's concerned, made her a better person.
0: Hmm. I mean, the level of detail uh, in terms of of what she can remember of those experiences is impressive. In um, little things like how the color of their coats changed over the year, and what they hunted for, how they you know they, they they liked getting shellfish from the streams and things like that. Um. Initially, reading that, Waboo does sound a bit like an imaginary friend but I, I don't use that term in a dismissive way I I'm someone who absolutely thinks that the imagination is is a very important thing and not and not just a, a faculty of the brain to to entertain us so and also in that chapter you, you talk about how you were saying she she had a lot of time by herself and I there was that like, her stepfather was abusive so do, do you think that in any way? these factors the that that sort of strain could perhaps have meant that she was in um almost like an altered state and again I, when i when i say altered state i i really don't mean that it didn't happen i'm i'm just intrigued as to to how it happened because it's so it's so incredible it
1: is, it really is uh, i mean I, I all i can say is that if that was what her what her mind generated to fill that gap for her, then it is the most remarkable and most stunning protective measure (laughs) I've ever seen a a mind take. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I, there's, I mean, obviously there is, there is the potential that that's exactly what happened because of the circumstances. But on the other hand, the information that, you know, I was able to glean from her in discussing and, you know, kind of mulling over these experiences with her is that is information that matches uh, a lot of other tiny details that I've heard over and over again from other people, um, which I don't, it's not something she would have been exposed to. So it's, it's really fascinating um, no matter what happened, but I really think there is some, definitely some reality in it um she has you know small things with her that she carried with her from that time as a child that are basically souvenirs of the time she spent um but those you know those are hers those are you know not something that she shares in general um they i wasn't allowed to take photos of them or anything um those are very much hers Um, But, you know, little things like she she told me about uh, trying to teach Wabu how to play cards um, and how, you know, he understood that she was playing and entertained by this. But the concept of it was just not something, you know, she tried to uh, communicate to him the rules, you know, basically of a basic card game. And he was just like kind of in essence, you know, why (laughs) this (laughs) is irrelevant kind of, you know, Um, that seemed to be his attitude. Like he tried, but he's just like, you know, didn't make sense. There was no point in it for him. So, and, you know, little things like that, which, you know, if, if that was all her creation, then it is remarkable um, because it reflects you know what we know about working with primates and working with other creatures where you know there are certain things there are certain concepts that just don't cross Mm. the line you know no matter how you know good and hopeful your sense of communication with the other creature and your empathy with them is it doesn't there are concepts that don't cross over
0: yeah absolutely i I wanted to be as careful as as possible there i absolutely think this happened i I I believe I believe her. Um yeah.
1: And I know that I and I know I, Linda Godfrey has spoken to her too um and actually went with her to um visit the site and had a very peculiar experience while she was there. Uh, I think you can read about it on her blog still. So so there's 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 continued <laughs> effects that I don't think would have happened if this was just you know a many years long imagining it just doesn't Mm -hmm. it doesn't ring uh it doesn't ring false to me in any way um which is not to say the life of the mind is not real but it doesn't there there are elements in it that that tick different boxes
0: yeah yeah i mean i i know in that chapter didn't she speak to the people that were living there more recently and they yeah, they, they've been yeah. Posi- they, they've been wondering about all these shells that were left near their property. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah. Who, who's eating all these freshwater clams and then neatly stacking all the shells into these little piles? Like there was. Yeah, it's there is continued activity on the site, which, you know, verifies and and reinforces what her experiences were.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I absolutely don't. Think that she was entirely creating it, I think if I was gonna pitch an idea is that i I think she had an ability to see another almost like another layer of reality and um, that's where yeah. that's where I come from in terms of if I had to put my money down on what Bigfoot is, I think it that these creatures exist in a slightly different part of the reality spectrum, but they can come through to to ours and but yeah, anyway, I absolutely love that that opening eyewitness account it blew my mind I have to admit
1: yeah it's 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 amazing it really is
0: following on from that one you write about the the Durham gorilla um Mm. which I get the sense it's quite a well-known case
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I would say out of out of all the main cases that the Durham gorilla is the the best known of all
0: so just talk a little bit about that
1: Uh, sure. Yeah, it's um, Durham is a again a very small town. Maine has a lot of small towns, uh, and it's alongside the slightly larger town of Brunswick. And all of these events happened right around where the town line splits Brunswick and Durham. Um, uh, Tamara was uh, out biking. Um, She was thirteen. And she had been uh, spending you know, kind of the summer slumber party, extended slumber party thing with her um, friend Lois, who is 14. And uh, they were out b- biking with Lois's younger brothers who were on smaller bikes and didn't move as fast. So Tamara had managed to get way ahead of them, probably about a quarter mile, I estimated from her description. Um and stopped at this the crest of this little hill when she realized that they were so far back. She could still hear them around the curve in the road, but she couldn't see them anymore. So she waited and she was standing there kind of straddling her bike, just looking around because it's a really gorgeous area, um, especially in early summer when everything's leafed out and green. Um, and uh, she looked into the woods and was looking around and in the woods, there was a creature looking back at her. Uh, So they basically both stood there and stared at each other and just, you know, probably like Tamara said, she just wondered, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? And, um, and then shortly afterwards, uh, Lois and her brothers caught up with them. And Lois was not as contemplative a personality as Tamara apparently was. And, gave a very loud shriek fell off her bike uh the creature pivoted around and headed off and disappeared into the woods and uh there was just mayhem after that um they kind of bundled Lois up and and got her back to the parents house so they could deal with uh, her skin knee and uh, her parents called the local law enforcement and Tamara's dad came and picked her up because you know Things were just going to get crazier from there, Uh, although they had no idea how crazy it was going to get. And uh, the rest of the story is well documented in local newspapers um, and in the recollections of the people who lived there. Um, There were dozens of law enforcement personnel involved, uh, repeated rumored sightings in the area, Uh, you know, people wandering through the woods, trying to find them with beer and guns, you know, it was like your very stereotypical uh, monster Mm -hmm. hunt. Um, And then the police are trying to keep everybody out of the woods so that nothing, you know, unsafe happens. And it's, uh, yeah, it's something that a lot of people in the town feel very strongly about because of the way it was handled at the time. Um, There was a lot of ridicule involved. Uh, Certainly uh, Lois's family is, uh, Lois's family is still doesn't want to talk about it to this day. Uh, She unfortunately uh, passed on a number of years ago. And so I wasn't able to interview her, Um, but uh, I was able to, it took me a, a few years, but I was able to, um, track down Tamara and she by a very lucky chance was, was willing to talk to me about it. And, um, you know, we went, she drove me around, she showed me, you know, her daily route as a kid in those days, you know, going back and forth from her house to Lois's and, you know, where they would have gone on their bikes the rest of the day. And, you know, and we went to the spot itself, which as it turns out is in Brunswick and not Durham. Um, okay. it's like just before the town line, there's, there's a very fresh, uh, town line, uh, sign posted there now. Um, and that was a little, that gave me, I don't know, it's, it's almost like a little punchline, you know? So all the, all these years, the people of Durham have been hassled about this creature and, and actually it was in Brunswick the whole time. Um, you know, it just seems like, you know, one more little bit of ironic fate there, but, uh, it's, uh, it's inter- It's interesting and then, you know, it, to have that in the context of also Mike Ledbury's encounter, which is uh, in that same early part of the book, um, It's it seems pretty obvious that there is something going on in that area and it's not just one creature, it's, it's a whole, you know, it's at least one family group, possibly more.
0: Mm, yeah, so just um, talk a little about the, um, that Mike Ledbury case.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, that's, that's actually one of my favorites. Um, Mike was one of the very first, uh, people to contact me when, um, after I mentioned, you know, the articles I mentioned about me looking for eyewitnesses kind of went out into the world. Um, and he, I had apparently been trying to tell people his story for a, a long time and nobody appeared to want to listen to it. Um, and, uh, and so he, I think he, he, in he fact, started our interview by asking me questions. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, and also, I think he expected me to not listen to him. Um, I think he was so used to people scoffing at what he told them that, you know, the idea of somebody actually sitting and listening to you and then asking questions afterwards about the details, it never occurred to them that somebody actually would do that at this point. He'd been through it the other way. So many other, so many times before. So, um, so he was uh, in high school and the location of his encounters is just, just a few miles from where Tamara had her sighting. Um, And he spent a lot of time outdoors. You know, again, this is, this is a story of growing up as a kid in the seventies in Maine was that, you know, you roamed around in the woods you know, around the river, you know, on neighbor's farms, you, you just, you know, you kind of explored and made your own fun when you were done with school for the day or during the summer. And so he spent a lot of time out in the woods and he would notice that something was following him. Something was following him around. And he thought, well, you know, I should be able to catch whoever this is, whoever's pulling my chain here, you know, cause they're, it sounded like you know somebody walking on two legs so it's it's got to be a human it's got to be some guy from the neighborhood who just doesn't have anything better to do than follow me around and spook me you know and he was a track runner at school so he was he was pretty swift and he was like all right i'm going to catch this guy and so he would try to catch them and whatever whoever whatever it was would outrun him uphill every time and he's just like what the heck is going on so event this went on for a while. There are a few other incidents described in the book, which kind of give you an idea of the other things he encountered. And eventually he actually, while he was out stalking deer and stuff like that, he saw one and suddenly realized this is nothing like what I thought it was. This is not some schmuck from the neighborhood who's messing with me. This is something real that isn't supposed to be real. Um, he spent a lot of time at home, Um, his mom was a big proponent of National Geographic, so they had a subscription to it and they watched the TV shows and he had read, you know, very avidly over the years about what the primatologists like, um, Jane Goodall, um, were, were doing out in the field. And so he decided he was going to try to apply some of that to what he saw because he, the only thing he could think was that this is, you know, this essentially looks like some sort of giant ape man, um. And so he spent a good amount of time uh doing that with some very interesting results at the end. So it's uh it's a really it makes me because I spent a lot of time as a kid, you know, reading National Geographic and watching the specials. And I just like, I'm like, man, that would have been amazing. I mean, as he put it, he's like, I you know, I never needed Disneyland. I had I had all the <laughs> land around where we lived. There was that was that was my Disneyland. So
0: yeah absolutely I mean with these these two cases, is it a case of the people being on the territory of the creature because it almost sounds like these creatures are curious about human settlements and and are near boundaries of you know not built up areas but quite large human settlements
1: yeah um there there does seem to be a recurrence of this where Whatever their general territory is, it butts up directly against human territory, and I think that continues to this day. Um, you know, Maine has obviously gotten more developed over the years, especially in the southern part of the state, Brunswick, um, where Mike had his Mike and Tamara had their encounters. As you can see visibly the changes that have occurred over the decades um, since then, but it's still there's still uh, because Maine values their wilderness. Uh, there is a surprising amount of it left. Um, and it creates uh if you look, I spent a lot of time looking at uh the aerial satellite maps on Google Maps, and you can see there are just green corridors that cover the state. Um, there are only a few areas where that doesn't exist. Um, and that's you know, predominantly in the Southern area, especially around Portland. Portland is the most heavily built up area of the state, but everything else are like centered around these tiny little towns or small urban areas like the capital in Augusta. Uh, Bangor is another big one. Um, but every one of those places, butt right up against the wilderness. And most of the reports I hear are from people who live on property that's adjacent To the areas that are still wooded, still connected to other wilderness areas and river corridors, uh, forest corridors. Um, and it seems like there's a certain amount of adaptation that goes on, um, like other wildlife like deer and everything else, the power lines, uh, where those are cut through the forest, those are used as, you know, travel corridors, easy travel corridors, shortcuts, um, by all sorts of creatures. And, uh, including um you know the ones we're talking about today so it's uh it's an interesting mix and Maine also has a really long tradition of you know staying out of your neighbor's business <laughs> so i think there in most cases that's part of what goes on it's just like everybody does their own thing you know you might run into each other every now and then but you're not like over there telling them what to do or where to go and And that's, I think, (laughs) in a weird sort of way, I think that translates in these cases where unless it's a really aggressive uh, family group, you're not going to have problems. Everybody just kind of does their own thing and accepts that there are neighbors nearby doing their own thing and leaves it alone. And that's I think that's another reason why a lot of the stories don't get talked about, because, you know, why do you want to poke bear? You don't. You just don't. You just leave it. <laughs> Everything's going fine. If it ain't broke, don't fix it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, if something like the Durham Ape case happened now, I mean, do you think there would be the same response from the police? That I, when I was reading that, um, I, I, I was quite surprised that there was such a response to to what happened.
1: Yeah, that was. I mean, there's a few unique things about it. I mean, the fact that one of the local radio stations got a hold of it almost immediately and, you know, was broadcasting that information that same evening, uh, I think kind of helped to set off everything. Um, but I think now, you know, even Tamara herself says, like, I if I knew what was going to happen, I never would have reported it. And I think the culture now is that everybody knows What's going to happen if you report it? And so people don't. Mm. Um, if you if you report it, you tell your friends, or you you know you post you you send it in a report to the BFRO on their website, um, you, or you know another local group like the main Bigfoot Foundation. You don't. I generally find that people are not calling law enforcement anymore. They're not calling the game wardens. They're not calling you know any of the the forest rangers like it's just not everybody's kind of learned from (laughs) everything that's come before that you just don't do that because the results are never good i mean either they're gonna ignore you disbelieve you or they're gonna set off a chain of events that that nobody wants in their life you know like i said people Mm. in me tend to be fairly private they don't want everybody up in their business it's just you know and I think I was talking to somebody the other night who had stuff going on in the nineties and I was trying to make sure they weren't part of another encounter in that area that had apparently talked to law enforcement and they were like, Oh no, you know, we would never, why would we ever call the police about something like that? It's just not, it's not part of the culture anymore. Whereas back then, I think they were thinking more in terms of, you know, the safety of their children. What is this large animal? Is it a hazard? And then it was broadcast as a hazard and all hell broke loose. Um, yeah, so I think I think our perception of <laughs> what to do in situations like that is very different than it was in the 70s. I think that's changed over the years.
0: Right, okay. Um, one last case I wanted to talk about before we discuss your conclusions and the patterns you've identified is... A chap called Stephen Lombardo, which you describe as being like almost something out of The X Files, and I, I saw that in the case list, and I had, I, <laughs> I knew I'd probably enjoy reading that one, and it is very interesting.
1: Yeah, it is. Out of all the cases, out of all the eyewitnesses I talked to, that was the most peculiar one, and I still, you know, every now and then I talk to him, and we're we're both still puzzling over it. um you know, hoping that somebody else comes forward with more information at some point, but until then, it's just a big bunch of question marks. Um, yeah, would you like me to give you the capsule version of, of Steve's story?
0: Yeah, um, please do.
1: <laughs> so this was in the uh, I think it was the mid to late nineties. Um, Steve was working at. You know, this big credit card processing company that had set up here in Maine, um, they had recently expanded their, um, their offices and moved them so that they were transporting staff um, who were parking at the old location and they were using shuttle buses to take them to the new location so they didn't have to drive all that way. Um, so this was like a daily thing, you know, park your car, take the bus to work, work, get out of work, take the bus home drive home from there. Um, and Steve was on the backside of that. It was, I think, probably between like five and six in the evening, probably November, uh, which means it was fairly dark at that point. Um, and so he was on a bus with just a handful of other people and the bus driver, uh, driving down route one, right along the coast, um, in Northport, And, uh, they had just left, um, the workplace, and we're coming down Route One. There's not a lot of traffic there, even during what would conceivably be rush hour, like the five to six um, time frame. And uh, they came down the stretch of the road and encountered a line of vehicles, larger work vehicles, parked bumper to bumper um, alongside this field with what looked like those big portable work lights. That they use at construction sites, set up behind the vehicles, pointing into the field. And so the bus driver slowed down, you know, not knowing what was going on. That the area has a pretty high hit rate for deer that time of year as they're moving around. Um, and if they come bouncing across Route One at the wrong time and it's dark, well, it makes a mess. Um, so they thought they maybe were going to encounter something like that, um, and. So they had slowed down as they were driving past and the bus driver looked and saw in the uh, long door alongside her, her station at the steering wheel uh, with the glass that goes down towards the ground that there was apparently a foot sticking up out of the ditch, which lay beyond the vehicles. Um, And she called Steve over to look at it because it was the weirdest looking thing she'd ever seen. It wasn't. It was human like, but it was not a human foot because it was um, the leg that it was attached to. Still was covered in hair, um, kind of orangey, uh, wispy, almost orangutan like hair. Uh, at least that's how it looked in the lights um, that were in the field behind it. So, so they're staring at this thing and puzzling over it because, it, it, I mean they expected a deer, a deer foot. You know, this was not in any way, shape or form uh, a deer accident. This was something else entirely. And they didn't know what to make of it, but they had to keep going because there was traffic that was about to start coming up behind them. So they kept going on uh, on the route back. And, uh, you know, when he got off the bus at at the parking lot, he, you know, they agreed that she was going to on her way back up, because they did a loop, the the bus drivers did, uh, she was going to, you know, look and see what else she could see. And on her loop back, as it turns out, when she talked to him the next morning, everything was gone. All the vehicles were gone. The lights were gone. There was no trace there of anything that they had seen. Um, And there was probably about a half hour uh, between the initial sighting and her driving back through on the bus loop. And the other thing she noticed was that for, I think like a 10 or 20 foot swath of the road adjacent to where they had seen what they had seen. Uh, it looked like the road had been power washed. Uh, there was no debris, uh, main roads or, you know, there's plenty of grit and grime on them that is, you know, easily visible. And when it's gone, you really notice it. Um, and this stretch of the road was pristine Even in the cracks of the road, there was no debris. Everything had been swept clean. So, you know, he, Steve kept his eye out in the newspapers over the next, you know, couple of weeks looking to see if there's reports of an accident or anything like that, that would, you know, give him a better explanation (laughs) than the no explanation at all that he had. Um, And uh, nothing showed up and yeah he he went and stopped and looked at the place himself when he had his car uh you know in the next week or so and it was as she had said it was there was a whole section of that road that had been cleared of all debris there was no sign of anything they had seen there and uh yeah, no answers just <laughs> just big question marks so it's perplexing
0: yeah it really is it it makes you wonder if the If something had hit a Bigfoot and killed it, then it implies that in some way there is like an official understanding that these creatures exist. Yeah. It seems that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no other conclusion you can draw from that because the vehicles were, they were work vehicles. They had no identifying marks. um, They clearly had a setup, you know, with the lights and everything else you know, where, you know, where did they come from? Who sent them? <laughs> what were they doing? Where did they go afterwards? Um, Yeah, it's, and I have, you know, a lot of people who have contacted me afterwards, you know, after reading that chapter, and they just, you know, they want to know more, they want, you know, they're like, you know, where's the closest FBI agency? And the, the answer mm-hmm. is about an hour away in Augusta, uh, you know, so like, it's made me do more research, Um, as people have come up with questions to try to, answer what he saw um or at least elements of the repercussions of it uh so yeah it's it's a real puzzle uh, i would love to someday <laughs> to know more about it
0: so connected to that i'm guessing that there are state parks and national parks in maine I'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if you've spoken to Many people that work there or have a, have roles in those places, but is there any sort of reluctance to talk about these subjects from that area of experience of those sorts of people?
1: Hmm. that is a good question. Um, I was contacted by uh, one fellow who is a retired uh, park ranger, um, but I've been unable to reestablish contact with him so but he's you know long retired. You know this happened decades ago. So I think if I hear from anybody from that sector, it's probably going to be people who have, you know long passed their their service and uh, mm-hmm. don't feel quite the onus to keep uh, anything under wraps anymore. Um, but I haven't really pushed talking to people in those capacities about it. Um, I know there are other people who specialize in that,, uh, but uh, I've been mostly focused just on you know the everyday citizen but i really would love to talk to folks uh, i know the main bigfoot foundation uh, that i work with sometimes they have some members that have because of their uh roles in the communities have contacts within those fields and they have talked to people but i think generally it's done off the record mm. um it's not something people want to publicize but you know essentially that there there are interesting things that happen in locations like that because they are understandably remote and heavily forested and uh you know have been so for a very long time uh which means that you know if there is a population of any sort there they're fairly undisturbed um and that's i mean if if it fits under the purview of the roles of you know forest rangers and game wardens and all that then that publicizing any of that doesn't help anything yeah. <laughs> for, for them or for the population that exists there if it does so it's yeah it's a it's not something I've tried to tackle yet uh head on so hmm.
0: so from your book and the people that you've spoken to what sort of conclusions have you come to and and what what patterns might you have identified about the the behavior of these creatures,
1: um, I I'm trying to think of the best kind of ca- way to capsule encapsulate this. Um, if we do have uh, mystery hominids living alongside of us in Maine, they're uh, they're they take advantage of the extensive resources that exist in this state that are you know relatively untouched. Uh, so we have fantastic uh, tree cover. Uh, lots of wilderness everywhere. So there's plenty of shelter. Um, they take advantage of the the waterways. Uh, Maine has kind of a ridiculous amount of, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, brooks, streams, rivers, lakes, ponds, bogs, like pretty much everywhere you go in the state until you like get up into the mountains um, in the West. It's, uh, which means it's also got a huge amount of food resources. Uh, we have very healthy uh, mammal populations, fish populations, bird populations. There's a, a vast array of food sources, um, and then also the vegetative ones. You know, fruits, berries, nuts, all all, <laughs> all of that good stuff. Um, plus, farmer crops. Uh, so they're likely. Uh, omnivorous, as our native black bears are. Um, they're opportunists. Uh, I hear a lot of stories of them around um, transfer sta- transfer stations or dumps. Um, so they may also scavenge in other ways too. Uh, they're curious in a lot of cases about human activity, especially when it's kids. Um, they seem to pay attention uh, when kids are out on their own, Um, not from what I've talked to people about in a threatening manner, just in an observing manner. But I know there are stories out there, uh, people who I haven't talked to who have had uh, scarier encounters with them. Um, Most of the behavior that's perceived as threatening uh, from the people I've talked to is mostly kind of like a bluff charge kind of thing, uh, making a lot of noise uh, or rushing at people or following them to try to move them out of an area. It's a, I think it's a territorial based aggression um, where you are somewhere you shouldn't be, uh, so far as they're concerned, and it is in your best interest to vacate <laughs> the premises and go elsewhere. Um, yeah, and that's and that's pretty much it and like i said the whole you know mainers being fairly private and living alongside other people without getting in their business i think that plays a large part in the dynamic uh between whatever is here and the mainers that are on this land um yeah it's it's an interesting quandary and i i just i you know the more i learn about it and the more people i talk to it's it continues to, (laughs) it continues to be interesting. Let's just say.
0: I can only imagine it is. I absolutely love the book. I thought it was a great read.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad.
0: Well, Michelle, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's been very wonderful to talk to you.
0: If people want to find out more about your work and how to get your book, how best do they do that?
1: Oh, sure. Um, it's really easy. Uh, if you want signed copies of my book shipped to you, um, you can find them at uh, greenhandbooks.com. Uh, and, uh, or you can, you know, buy it at your local bookseller or online anywhere else. It's, it's available all across uh, the world, I believe, uh, UK and elsewhere. Um, and, uh, you can find me online um I'm on Instagram and uh there's uh you can follow my Strange Maine blog which is where I will post anything having to do with Bigfoot in Maine. Um, I also have a strange main Facebook page as well for those that are going that route. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty easy to find out there in the in the in the virtual world. And then if you're in the area, I'm in Portland, Maine, and uh I can actually sign your book for you in person if you come to my shop, which is the Green Hand Bookshop.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that info in the show notes. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Michelle.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Rick.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Michelle. We only really scratched the surface of the eyewitness testimony she has included in the Bigfoot in Maine book. So definitely get hold of a copy if you want to read about more of those encounters. I have included a link in the episode description to the video she mentions where Susie describes her encounter with Wabu in more detail, which is well worth watching. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow SomeOtherSphere on Twitter at Spherical pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is SomeOtherSphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, And I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.